Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Mask mayhem, lawmakers fighting over face coverings while U.S. COVID cases hit records. Streaming stutter, Netflix guidance disappoints after lockdown-led gains. And driving diversity, Uber pushes for more inclusion. We'll hear exactly how. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to all our first movers around the globe. Great to have you with us this Friday and lots to discuss, of course, with the COVID crisis as always. But I do want to start by saying what a week it's been for tech. We've had Twitter hacked. We've had TikTok attacked. And now Netflix, well, thwacked. The streaming giant setting the earnings season tone, warning that the shutdown surge in subscriptions is set to slow shares. As you can see, down over 7% pre-market, still though up more than 50% year-to-date. Context, as always, key. More broadly, U.S. futures are higher following yesterday's stock stumble. Sentiment was hit by data, I think, from the U.S. and China, suggesting that consumers will remain cautious while the pandemic continues. The expectation, of course, in both countries is that more support and plenty is needed. Now, speaking of support, EU leaders are meeting face to face this time, or should we say mask to mask and elbow to elbow to work on their multi-billion dollar recovery fund. French and German stocks, though, are up over 12 percent since the programme was announced back in May. So there's lots of good news, we can argue, in the price here. The question is, do we get progress? Asian markets, meanwhile, finishing mostly higher. Chinese stocks, though, tumbled 5% for the week overall. Overseas investors, in fact, have withdrawn some $4 billion from Chinese markets this week. Something to watch amid the concerns about future economic support, not to mention, of course, geopolitical tensions and the risk, therefore, of reaction and economic spillover. Whether it's the global economy or the COVID crisis, it's a global problem. And the news, the sobering news from the U.S. Sunbelt should be a concern to all. That's where we begin the drivers. The U.S. reported 77,000 new COVID-19 cases on Thursday. It's the highest daily jump on record. In at least 39 states, the numbers continue to rise in California, Arizona, Texas and Florida. Hospitals are simply running out of beds. Rosa Flores reports. Miami hospitals are quickly running out of space. They're at 95 percent capacity as Florida continues to break coronavirus records. The situation is dire. I don't want to I don't want to sugarcoat it or or I don't want to uh, downplay it in any way. Our hospitalizations are at the highest level. The death rate will uh, continue to go up if uh, if we don't take any more dramatic measures. With the higher demand of testing in the Sunshine State, there's a need for an efficient turnaround in results. Governor Ron DeSantis blaming labs, not the Florida Department of Health, for the current backlog. Our state labs can do stuff, but I mean, they only do a limited bandwidth. We're trying to expand it. On Thursday, Florida reported nearly 14,000 new cases. Still, DeSantis has yet to issue a statewide mask requirement, leaving it up to local leaders. Meantime in Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp signed an executive order banning cities and counties from enforcing facial coverings, even suing Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms over her mandate in Atlanta. What we can't do is use executive orders uh, to divide the state of Georgia uh, and take a, a, an apolitical public health crisis 
and turn it into a political football. Colorado's governor making masks mandatory statewide, saying it will encourage more people to cover their faces. The party has to end. Uh, if we're going to keep our businesses open, uh, keep our economy open and save lives. It's one of at least 38 states experiencing an uptick in new weekly coronavirus cases. Texas hospitals are becoming more and more overwhelmed and with cases skyrocketing preparation for the worst. A refrigerated truck now spotted in Dallas serving as a makeshift morgue. In Washington state, the first epicenter of the virus in the U.S., the governor sending this warning to residents if new infections keep rising. We cannot rule out the potential for another stay-home order this year, and perhaps not in the too distant future. Dr. Anthony Fauci once again reminding young people the seriousness of the virus. You can get the mindset, well, listen, if I'm infected, I don't know I'm infected, I'm not feeling sick, who cares? I'm not bothering it anybody else. That is incorrect because by allowing yourself to get infected, you are propagating the pandemic. Rosa Flores reporting there. All right, let's move on. Beijing says the idea of the United States placing a travel ban on Chinese Communist Party members and their families would be absurd. It's been reported that the Trump administration is considering exactly that. China's foreign affairs ministry says, quote, if this report is true, then the United States is blatantly going against the 1.4 billion Chinese people. David Culver is live in Beijing. And David, you and I were speculating on the prospect of this. In fact, yesterday, I've read one report that suggests this could impact as many as 270 million Chinese if you include Communist Party members and their families, and some of them are incredibly high profile. Right. And that's rooted, Julia, in the fact that there are some 92 million Communist Party members here in China. I I think the challenge here going forward, and for one, we should point out the U.S. has not said officially they're going to go forward with this. But the challenge, if they were to go forward with it, would be one of enforcement. I mean, it's very difficult to determine who's a party member because it's not like as of now they have to put that on a visa application to go to the U.S. But as you mentioned, there's some high profile folks that we're discussing amongst this group uh, who would be included as well as their family members. I want to show you a list of some of the people who would be affected here potentially if it were to be put into action. One would be Ren Zhengfei. He is the chairman of Huawei, Jack Ma of Alibaba. Huang Jianlin of Wanda Group, that's a big shopping and AMC uh, theaters here in China group. Uh, they manage a lot of those malls. And then Xu Jiayin of Evergrande Group, that is a real estate developer, if you will. Um, they, they are massive as well. So you're talking about individuals who have a very large footprint in the financial field. And this could obviously impact them if it were to come to fruition. What's interesting here, though, is to see state media reaction. They seem to be pushing this forward with a lot more anger as of now. Uh, They feel like this would ostracize most of the Chinese people. What's interesting, though, is that it singles out the Communist Party in particular. So it perhaps, from the U.S. perspective, would chip away at some of the rising nationalism that we have seen here as a result of the U.S.-China rising tensions and the back and forth over the past several weeks and months. And the reality is every action the U.S. has taken, be it sanctions with regards to Hong Kong or sanctions with regard to Xinjiang, uh, you have seen in return a rise in nationalism here. And it's easy for state media to rally that. But with this in particular, you start to segment a group out. You segment 
the Communist Party members. The New York Times kind of likened it in the U.S. to folks being disappointed with Trump or angry with Trump and saying the rest of Republican Party can't travel into China. So you then obviously wouldn't anger the Democrats in that situation. So it, it would be interesting to see how this moved forward, though it would be very difficult to see it actually put into action. Absolutely. And those with the financial interests in China as well, some big, uh, big Republicans as well, some business leaders that would be um, probably pretty furious not to be able to go there or have access to there as well. Just to be clear, and you've already reiterated right. this, Mike Pompeo would not be drawn on this. He said, look, we keep every option on the table with regard to China. That was the press secretary yesterday speaking in the press conference as well. This is um, deep water if they decide to go there. This would be a very important decision and tough to enforce 90 million people, let's be clear. It would be incredibly difficult to enforce. And I think that's the reality that they'd be facing. So perhaps it's not so much putting it into action, but just the added rhetoric that is now coming from the U.S. and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in particular, somebody who has been targeted directly by Chinese state media and Chinese officials, as we have seen the back and forth just intensify. Yeah, absolutely. David Cobber, great to have you with us and uh, to get your context. Thanks, Julia. All right, moving on. Stuck midstream, Netflix investors experiencing a buffering blip as the company gives a weak outlook for subscription growth. U.S. investors have been clamoring for better visibility from companies this earnings season. Claire Sebastian joins me, and this is not what they were hoping to hear. Clearly, we saw a subscription bump with people under lockdown watching things like movies using Netflix and others. But the outlook from these guys, incredibly cautious. Yeah, the Tiger King bump, uh, according to Netflix, Julia, appears to be waning. I think what we're hearing from the company now is that they feel that the best of 2020 in terms of subscriber growth is behind us. So that is why we see the stock lower. But the numbers were still impressive. 10 million subscribers added in the quarter, down from 16 million in the first quarter, uh, but still above the company's own estimate of seven and a half million. Uh, And that means we now have the the, the roundup of the first half of the year, that 26 million subscribers were added in the first half. That's compared to 28 million in the entirety of 2019. So you can really see the sort of surge that they saw uh, during uh, the lockdown. So clearly they feel at this point that this is a pull forward in demand and that it will wane in the second half of the year. I think it's still sort of early to know if that was what this was or if it's part of a, a longer term shift into streaming and perhaps away from things like movie theaters. But, but you know, a note of optimism as well from the company. They say that some production is coming online. Their slate for, of content for 2020 is unimpacted by this because of the long lead time. But they do say that in 2021, they expect some of their titles to shift to the second half of the year because of the delays that we've seen in production. Yeah, that was one of the things that fascinated me. Also on the call, referring to TikTok as a competitor. Anyone that creates content here, it seems, um, is a is a competitor. But one of the other things that we saw, obviously not relating to the financials here, a co-CEO, a step up for the chief of content now is going to share the lead title with, um, with Reed Hastings. What do we think of that? Yeah, I think this, this was an interesting one from Netflix. Ted Sarandos has been at the company for more than 20 years. He's a very visible person. He's on all of the earnings calls. And I think this is a statement from the company on two things. One, just how crucial content is 
to, to who they are as a company. This is really kind of a Hollywood-facing company as well as, as something that is traded as a tech stock. Uh, so I think that's critical. And I think, you know, there's a lot of questions now swirling around succession. Reed Hastings, who is the current CEO, who is now going to share the role with Ted Sarandos, said, look, I'm around for another decade. But I think part of this is succession planning and continuity for this company as it continues to grow and perhaps expand into new areas, Julia. Yeah, absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. Content king. And they're making that really clear. Claire Sebastian, thank you. Twitter's an explanation mystery still surrounds this week's massive Twitter hack. Both Twitter and now the FBI are investigating how around 130 big accounts were breached in an apparent Bitcoin scam. Donnie O'Sullivan is on the story for us. What more do we know here, Donnie? Obviously, the FBI now involved. But for me, it's still the lack of information coming from Twitter about what on earth happened and how. Hey, Julia. Yeah, Twitter posted a uh, small update last night to this uh, story, their investigation finding that, as you said, about 130 accounts, they say, uh, were targeted. So in some ways, you know, that is a relatively low number, given that there are millions of accounts. But given that we know about the high profile people that were targeted, you know, we know about a dozen or so. There's Obama, Gates, Elon Musk, Joe Biden. Uh, you know, we don't know who those other 100 accounts or so are. And we also don't know. And Twitter says they are still working to determine, which is a little bit hard to believe they're, that they're still working to determine whether or not private information like private uh, messages were accessed as part of this. The FBI is leading the federal investigation here in New York. Governor Andrew Cuomo has launched his own investigation And over the past 24 hours, we've heard from the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee and others in Congress demanding that uh, Twitter briefs them. So I likely will probably see some more updates uh, from Twitter over the weekend. Possibly they'll be hoping to to get that news out the weekend. So maybe people uh, don't take notice. But, you know, this is just incredibly concerning, Julia. Yeah, it is. And to your point as well, there are, what, 260 million Twitter users. There were only, we believe, let's be clear, 130 accounts targeted, but millions and millions and millions of eyeballs see those specific accounts because they've got so many followers, which is what makes what happened here so potent, Doni. But I do think, again, it raises a question that you and I have debated so many times. We are in a presidential election year. We know there was interference and these social media platforms are simply not safe. Yeah, I mean, you know, if just Joe Biden's account alone had been compromised, that would be a huge story in an election year. And, you know, I think once we learn more about who the accounts that were targeted, the 130 accounts they say were targeted, we might learn more about the motives of the attackers. Obviously, they ostensibly posted that it was a Bitcoin scam. You know, there may have been more to it than that. But as you mentioned, this is an election year. Now, regardless of who has done this hack, you know, what we have seen before is, uh, you know, when 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 hacked materials uh, emerge online, sometimes sometimes they're faked. So now, you know, with this sort of Twitter uh, hack, you know, somebody could potentially start posting uh, to say, oh, we have private messages belonging to this uh, Twitter user who we hacked. Here are their messages. But the messages themselves, of course, might turn out to be fake. So, you know, regardless of who is behind this hack, uh, bad actors, foreign nation states and others 
could exploit it in different ways to cause confusion. And, you know, it's it's possible, I guess, that just like 2016, uh, the 2020 election here in the US could be one that is characterised by hacks and leaks, whether they're real or not, Julia. Yeah, and we've had four years to tackle this. Don't you, Sullivan? Thank you so much. I'll get off my high horse before I carry on this conversation and blow other things up in the show. Still to come on the first move from smartphones to theme parks. This corporate empire does it all. I speak to the vice chair of Vietnamese conglomerate Vingroup about their ethos and their expansion plans and more. And Uber says it will rid its platform of racism. How the company is tackling perhaps the most persistent gridlock in Silicon Valley. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York. Future still pointing to a higher Wall Street open. Tech trying to play a bit of catch up here, despite that weak growth outlook from Netflix. Remember, that stock's still up some 50% year to date over the past five trading sessions. The Nasdaq has fallen around half a percent. Compare and contrast that with the Dow and the S&P, which is still posting solid gains. So some nervousness after uh, weeks of gains, particularly for the uh, tech stocks here. As we wrap up another trading week, Chinese stocks remain higher for the year. The Nikkei is modestly lower and the Hang Seng down 11 percent. Southeast Asian shares, the laggard in the region with stocks in Singapore, Thailand and the Philippines all down by some 14 percent year to date. Interesting uh, views on catch up there too, potentially. Now, the rise of a corporate empire in Vietnam, Vingroup, one of the biggest private companies in Asia, has dozens of subsidiaries, including VinSmart, VinFast and VinSchool. We'll explain. The company made its name in real estate, then expanded into other avenues like supermarkets, amusement parks, education, healthcare, And as I just mentioned there, now smartphones and cars. Wow. Joining us now, I'm pleased to say, Vingroup Vice Chairman, Thuy Leg, Miss Thuy, great to have you on the show with us. Thank you so much for joining us. For viewers that might not understand what Vingroup is outside of Vietnam, just explain what the, the ethos of the company is and just how you've expanded to so many areas. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, well, um, um, when you think about Vingroup, uh, the few words come to my mind uh, uh, our tagline is forever startup. So every day we live a life of a startup, um, and uh, uh, we try our best to um, uh, to survive that day. Uh, we uh, we promote um, being effective and and speedy, uh, and uh, we all about result oriented. Um, uh, Vin Group is a very dynamic and demanding organization uh, on all the in- employees. Um, and uh, we also, above all, we also promote the Vietnamese um, culture and, and spirit within our group. Um, but at the same time, we also we started becoming international and started having uh, a lot more and more uh, international uh, employees supporting um, us in the workforce as well. From Ving Group, I think, is an evolution from sort of traditional businesses that I mentioned, like tourism, real estate, to far higher tech, the work that you're doing with smartphones, with cars, for example, too. Again, it feels like the ethos of the company comes back to some modernization push as well in Vietnam and beyond. Yeah, we, um, our, 
Uh, our our the mission is for a better life of the Vietnamese people. So everything that we do is um, is for that purpose. Uh, we build um, uh, we build um, residential development to make a, to to give the uh, people not just a better homes, but give them a better lifestyle. We um, uh, we build modern shopping malls. Uh, we built a school. <clears throat> um, um, hospitals. Uh, we um, modernize the agriculture in Vietnam, uh, and most recently, as you already mentioned, we um, we started a car company less than three years ago, Vinfast, uh, and our cars are already on the street in Vietnam, uh, becoming um, two of our three cars. We uh, have become recently the best-selling cars in Vietnam in June, um, surpassing every all, all the other um, car models in Vietnam. And um, we also just um, over a year ago, we started getting into smartphone and we we're making smartphones and IoT products and uh, many other um, technology-related uh, products. I mean, this is astonishing. In, in the space of two to three years, suddenly going from getting into a business and actually having cars and phones um, on the market here. I know you're eyeing uh, expansion opportunities, as you mentioned, internationally as well. Talk about your ambitions here in the United States, because I know you see this as a potential market for, for Vingroup products. Yeah, we, um, we, we're very focused about our um, international expansion. So, uh, um, outside of Vietnam, we um, uh, we uh, we would like to expand into the U.S. and focus all our resources in the U.S. before um, before we um, we expand to other countries. So um, so we're preparing for Vinfast and and Vinsmart to to be in the U.S. Uh, pretty soon. Can you give me a sense of how soon? <laughs> Um, Vin smartphone uh, very soon this year and uh, wow. Vin fast cars uh, next year. Wow, I mean, this is pretty incredible. Okay, I want to talk about what's happened in light of the pandemic that we've seen. I mean, our viewers are, are well aware that Vietnam's handling of this is has been very different compared to what we've seen in the West. But clearly you have tourism assets, you have parts of the business that surely have been pretty severely impacted. Can you give us a sense of that? Um, as you, you might have seen that Vietnam has um, handled the situation pretty well from, mm. from day one, even though next to China and we're very, uh, probably very first, um, one of the very first countries that had uh, people coming from uh, from from China with um, COVID. Uh, so far, we still have a clean record, so no death uh, from COVID in in Vietnam yet. Um, uh, our our group uh, having more than fifty thousand employees all over the country, and you know um, suffering through the lockdown. Obviously, we were impacted by uh, by by the pandemic. Um, however, we. Um, um, we actually from we the one of the very first uh, organization in the country to uh, <clears throat> to let people uh, work from home and uh, um, basically segregate our uh, our employees into different groups and um, you know people that don't need to serve customers um, um, uh, were allowed to stay uh, to work from home and we um, started promoting um, like more working working from home but there, there were people in our workforce um, that had to be in touch with the um, uh, with the customers so we um, 
um, we have like, special allowances for for people that you know, like high risk people, that people that have to to face the the customers on daily basis. Uh, we we give them additional allowance for um, you know for being in the risk uh, group, and then we have the medium uh, risk group with a little bit lower uh, allowance, and a lot. I mean. Um, I, by now, we, we, we get back to normal and uh, all the business units um, know that they have to um, at least uh, reach their target or even um, or, you know, um, have to surpass the, uh, the target that they set out at the beginning of the year. But the, uh, the pandemic brought um, um, some very memorable experiences for us. Like, for example, at BinFast, where some of the expatriates, uh, like some, some expatriates, um, uh, came to our chairman and said that you know uh, we don't want to take um, uh, you know the company is suffering we don't want to take um, salary you know just we we're willing to take some pay cut um, so our our chairman said um, uh, he I mean he's very touched by the um, by the gesture but uh, uh, we vow to keep all our employees on the payroll even though uh, we stay at home for like a month and a half almost two months uh, and um, we um, our chairman said because. Uh, all these, uh, all our employees have family. They still have to support families, even though other businesses, um, uh, in in the country or elsewhere, shut down or cut the uh, uh, salary. Um, we we don't do it. We uh, we still make sure that the employees are fully paid, and we still make sure that we we support the employees. And um, that proved to be um, incredibly important uh, to yield a good result for us. And you know, we get a lot of loyalty from the people after that which is essential. I mean, many businesses around the world would love to do the same. Um, Mr. Wei, I do want to ask you if, if there's any criticism of, of Ving Group that I've read as I've been sort of investigating and trying to understand the company. It's, it comes to sustainability and how green the company is as it expands. And I know it's a challenge perhaps in Vietnam, but it's a different story and the focus is different when you are trying to enter a, a, a country like the United States, for example. What's your stance on sustainability? What's the plan? You know, then there has been some news uh, in the past few weeks about one of the projects that we just got um, awarded. Uh, but I think um, the, the facts have uh, surfaced uh, recently uh, that, um, that a lot of the uh, um, rumors were un ungrounded. So I think gradually you're going to see the, um, the, 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 the facts coming out. Um, uh, at Ving Group, we in the past, um, I would say two or three years, we started focusing a lot more efforts on uh, on green policy. Um, uh, part of it is be uh, is being responsible because we are the biggest um, uh, business group in in Vietnam. So being responsible uh, responsible to the country and responsible to uh, to the world as a whole. Uh, but also for for us, especially for me being a CEO of Binsmart, right? I I know that I cannot get uh, our products into like EU or the US if we don't have a, a clear green policy. So we started implementing a, a green policy um, within within Binsmart, but within Vin Group um, um, in the past few years. Um, Vin Group is one of the founding member of the National Plastic Action Plan, which is a a program uh, by uh, World, Economic, uh, World Economic Forum. So we we one of the founding members in in, in Vietnam, and we're leading that effort in in Vietnam. Uh, within all different uh, groups of, um, of, uh, of uh, different businesses within Vin Group, we also implemented uh, various actions. Uh, 
written in our policy to um, to protect the environment and uh, um, to reduce um, uh, the impact on the environment. Like, uh, give you a specific example of uh, of Vinsmart, uh, my business. They uh, we have reduced the the use of plastic by eleven by two percent. Uh, from the beginning of the year, and the target is by 20 percent by the end by the end of the year, despite the pandemic. And um, in addition to to the actions uh, to preserve the environment, we also you know we're looking to invest into like renewable energy. So we're working with one of the big international partners right now on um, on LNG um, power plant, and then we're looking at a few other um, uh, like uh, uh, solar. Miss Toy, I'm going to have to stop you there because I, I have to go to a break now. But it's been fascinating to uh, to talk to you. We will continue the conversation because I have plenty more questions, I promise you. And I know I've stolen you from your, uh, your birthday party, I believe, as well. So we will let you get back to that. And happy birthday for next week. Great to chat to you, the chairwoman. Of Thank, the you. Thank you. So Thank much. you so much. The market open so is next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Just taking a look at the market open this morning and U.S. stocks are green for the final trading day of the week, at least to begin. Tech stocks in focus, of course, with Netflix shares under pressure after reporting solid results, but soft guidance. And that was the key. Netflix, the first of the fangs to report earnings, of course, this season. Investors really need to see better results from the tech giants over the next few weeks to justify some of the lofty valuations. Netflix, as I've mentioned, already up 50% year to date. Also some nervousness in the bond market over this week's cautious economic data and warnings from the banks as they stockpile cash. The 10 and 30 year yields, bond yields are ticking lower. The uncertainty driving mortgage rates in the United States below 3% yesterday. That's the 30 year mortgage rate below 3%. Wow. Cathay Pacific, meanwhile, warning of a $1.3 billion loss for the first half of 2020. Passenger numbers were at 1% in June of where they were last year, rising to 7% so far in July. This comes as British Airways retires its entire 747 fleet early after a lack of demand. The CEO of Gatwick Airport says he doesn't expect passenger numbers to return to pre-pandemic levels for years. Bear in mind, this is usually the UK's second biggest airport, busiest airport after Heathrow. Stuart Wingate told our Anna Stewart he also sees more job cuts ahead. Well, as we've gone into June, uh, we've started to see some green shoots of recovery. Uh, we've seen EasyJet first of all start with flights to domestic destinations, one international flight to Nice. Um, and then as we've moved in uh, to July, we've seen more airlines participating. Currently, we're up to about 100 aircraft movements on the runway per day. Uh, that's what we'll see in July time. Usually this time of year, we'd see about 900 movements on the runway. Do you think you'll ever bring back all of your furloughed staff? I think for us, we've already reduced our workforce by just less than 25%. Um, but what we'll have to do is to look at the demand for flights this winter and also into next year. Um, and just as any business would do, we'll have to right-size our operation to the customer demand. Uh, so it's too early to tell, but unfortunately, uh, a lot of jobs have been lost already, and I would envisage more jobs being lost in the coming months. Do you worry that if the fellow scheme isn't extended or if there isn't additional support and thousands of jobs are lost in this industry, that we could lose skills that could take a very, very long time or maybe never to really return? I think the fundamental concern I have is that when you look at an airport, 
the number of jobs, broadly speaking, are proportionate to the volume of passengers going through the airport. So last year we saw 47 million passengers go through the airport. Um, next year we think we're going to see somewhere between 30 and 35 million passengers pass through Gatwick. So that gives you an idea of the proportionate reduction uh, in passenger volumes and therefore the likely impact uh, on jobs across the airport campus. Okay, lessons learned. If we have a second wave, and there are lots of reports suggest that we should be worried about the winter, what would you like the government to do differently? What would airports do differently? How would they operate? I think in terms of a second wave, uh, what we need to do is to avoid big blanket uh, um, approaches. Um, as we went into the first wave, understandably, when we really had little intelligence about what uh, we were confronting, uh, there was little other option than to take this more blanket approach. But as we look forwards, uh, what we'd like to see is the government uh, looking at countries and regions on a region-by-region -region basis. Richard Quest joins us now with more. Richard, I mean, it's really bleak. If I go back to what we were saying about Cathay Pacific, they've gone from 1% of the volume that we were seeing uh, compared to this time last year to 7%. It's a huge increase, but it's, it's minimal people travelling and we don't know how long this lasts. The airline industry has borne the brunt of uh, this crisis. Many other industries have been affected, but the airline industry is on its knees and virtually destroyed as a result of it because there's no obvious improvement, major improvement. Let me remember yesterday, the CEO of Delta Airlines, Ed Bastian, wrote to his staff saying, 17,000 of you have already agreed to take early redundancy or early payoffs. 40,000 of you have agreed to take long holidays. And it's still not enough. We are still overstaffed. So every airline, most of them will tell you quite honestly and openly, they've no idea what the airline will look like this time next year, other than to be certain it's smaller, much smaller. Yeah, and, and faced with the, the job cuts and the, uh, the belt tightening that's still got to come. And I just, I remember what you were saying about how polite and kind everybody was as, um, as you were traveling just a yeah. few days ago. Well, They've got no choice. This morning, British Airways, this, this morning, British Airways announced it was retiring 31 747 jumbo jets, the queen of the skies. Now, you know, to retire five, they were always going to get rid of them in the next five or seven years. But for an airline to say we're going to retire 31 of our largest planes overnight because we know we're not going to need them for the next four or five years, by which time they would have been gone. And we have newer, more efficient planes. But what a, what a day in aviation. BA was, at one point, the largest operator of the jumbo. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I sort of go weak at the knees and tremble when I see that plane take off. I think it is the most beautiful aircraft, probably since Concorde, or along with Concorde. To know that they're getting rid of 31 of them in one go for good reason. And Julia, what are they going to do with them? They will be scrapped, flown off to Spain or to the west coast of the States and scrapped. Heartbreaking. When was your first 747 flight, Richard? 1983, People's Express, London Gatwick to Newark. And, and you paid for your <laughs> ticket on the plane. 
No. They came along with one of those old machines that they ran the credit. Yeah, yeah. They ran the credit card, and I even remember the in-flight movie. It was Chariots of Fire, which you paid, and I bought a basket, a salad basket, for five dollars. Don't ask me. I can't remember what I did yesterday, but I can remember that flight like it was yesterday. People's Express. Yes. You are the world's best aviation analyst and you remember your first 747 flight. Richard, childhood memories. Thank you so much for that, Richard Crest. All right, after the break, we'll talk to Uber's chief legal officer about its plans to drive up diversity and what's being done to make this transit giant more inclusive. Stay with us. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Uber unveiling a new initiative to tackle racism and improve diversity within its staff and leadership. The ride-hailing giant says drivers and riders will receive anti-bias training. It also wants to build out its talent pipeline with the aim of doubling black representation at senior levels by 2025. Uber also says executive pay is already tied to the company's diversity targets. That's a key point. I'm pleased to say uh, Tony West, Senior Vice President, Chief Legal Officer and Corporate Secretary at Uber joins us now. He also served in the U.S. Justice Department under President Obama. Tony, a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for this. I think the message seems to be, look, we're not where we want to be, but this is the product of listening to our employees. And here's the action plan. That's exactly right. Look, you know, we're doing this um, because, well, while Uber stood with uh, Black Lives Matter, with the black community in solidarity when protests erupted uh, across the nation and around the world, we've always known that the real test of commitment to racial equality, you know, that comes in actions actually taken, you know, long after the protests uh, have subsided. And so it's important that we not let the issue of systemic racism, of, of inequality fade from our minds and our actions. So we spent a lot of time reflecting internally with our team members and externally with experts about uh, what more can can we do as a company to really leverage our tech, leverage the scale of our platform to combat racism and, and advance uh, equity. If I look at African-American representation in the senior exec level, I was wading through your diversity report from, from 2019. And, you know, I'll be clear, it's, it's, it's disappointing. It's, what, around 3% of your, of your senior executives. So when you're talking about a 25% rise over five years, it's... I mean, it's something, but you've got a lot of work to do, Tony. We have a lot of work to do, um, not just at, uh, at Uber, but throughout, uh, throughout tech. And I'll tell you, look, it's, it's not, uh, it's not uh, as, as much as I'd like to see, and I think most leaders at the company uh, would like to see, but it's an, important, uh, it's an important start and an important beginning in the journey of how do we really diversify the ranks of not only our leadership, because uh, as you say, we're aiming to double black representation at the five most senior leadership levels uh, at Uber by 2025. Um, and that's in addition to the implementation last year of tying executive job performance and compensation to really measurable DNI goals. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a recognition that um, while we'd like to, to commit to even more, we're, we're living in a world where right now there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, because of the COVID crisis. And it's unclear exactly how much hiring we're going to be able to do uh, over the next year. 
uh, or two. And so one of the things we wanted to do was make sure we set a goal that was important uh, and that reflected our commitment, but was also reflective of the economic reality in which in which we're living. Yeah, and I understand that. And I know you're also looking at the pipeline, too. This is not just about hiring in members from the African-American community. This is about looking at the people that you've got working in support, which the ratios here are very different compared to your executive level and giving them a way to to progress in the company, because this feels critical, too. Now, that's absolutely right. In fact, we already uh, have uh, a program in which we uh, try to give uh, opportunities to folks who are in our uh, cu- customer support staff ranks, uh, to drivers, to uh, delivery uh, folks who are on our platform, give them opportunities to come in and pursue uh, careers at Uber if that's something that they choose to do. Uh, and in fact, we've already had something called the Pursuit Program in which we've had many drivers and delivery persons be hired into tech roles. Uh, at Uber. And and our commitment is to really double that pipeline. Because as you said, um, because because of the uncertainty that we face, it's unclear on how much we're going to be able to hire. But we have a great pipeline of individuals who are already associated with Uber that if they they would like to pursue uh, an opportunity at Uber, we want to make that a reality and really make that something that they can do. And so uh, and many, and many of those folks, of course, are people of color. Uh, we think it's one of the best ways in which we can diversify our company over the next few years. Tony, I know this is an incredibly um, important and personal subject for you, not only your decision to join Uber, but you wrote this incredible internal memo where you talked about being 16 and getting driving lessons and your father giving you sort of safety guidelines if you were ever stopped by police. It, it sort of hit me in my stomach. What are you doing to sort of send your message as an executive and, and sort of showing that your experiences are sort of driving your approach to this sort of, sort of in a very personal way? Well, you know, look, Julie, I think that it, it, wherever one finds oneself, I think it's really important to to try to make whatever change you can, you know, sort of do whatever good you can, whatever, whatever, uh, whatever you can do to open doors of opportunity and bring those values to whatever position you might be in. And that's something that I've tried to do in my career, whether it's here at Uber or at PepsiCo or at the Department of Justice, uh, to try to to really focus on diversity and inclusion and bringing people in. And one of the ways in which you can do that is to let people know that you've had these same experiences, right? I mean, you know, uh, I know what it's like to shop in stores uh, because nobody knows when I'm shopping in a store, um, you know, whether I'm the chief legal officer of a Fortune 500 tech company, uh, they just, they see a black guy shopping in a store. You know, I've been pulled over for ostensibly, you know, no reason. Um, uh, and, and, and that is a very anxiety producing kind of experience. Um, I've often been the only black voice in the room and you feel a lot of the, the responsibility and a lot of, of the anxiety that can come from, from that when you know, um, you know, everything that you're saying is being dissected. So look, I, I've had those experiences. I know what that is like. Um, it makes it all the more important to make sure that when I'm in these positions of, of influence or impact, that I'm making sure I'm, I'm being upfront 
and open about the importance of uh, bringing more of those voices around decision-making tables. Yeah, and however senior you get, your experiences mirror what you've had in the past and, oh boy, do we need to change this. Tony West, thank you for yes, um, sharing absolutely. your experiences and um, your work at Uber. We'll keep track of your progress. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Julie, and thank Great you for continuing you. this conversation. It's so important. Thank you. All right, coming up on the show, EU leaders come together in Brussels and try to find consensus on a coronavirus plan of action, a financial one. The latest from the meeting next. Welcome back to the show and we're off to Brussels. European leaders are meeting face to face for the first time since the pandemic began. They're discussing an $850 billion virus recovery fund. No one is in any doubt how high the stakes are, as the French president underlined. This is a moment of truth and ambition for Europe. We are experiencing an unprecedented health, but also economic and social crisis. It requires much more solidarity and ambition. France and Germany have built an agreement on May the 18th it served as the basis for the Commission's proposal for this recovery plan, and the next few hours are absolutely decisive for meeting this ambition. Fred Plankton has all the details for us. Fred, I believe it's Angela Merkel's birthday today as well. There may be cake, but this is not going yes. to be a cakewalk. Agreeing this is going to be tough. No, you're absolutely right. I think it's her 66th birthday today, so happy oh. birthday to Angela Merkel. But you're absolutely right. It is probably going to be a pretty long evening for her. Not sure it's going to be one uh, with a lot of celebrations. And just hearing Emmanuel Macron there saying the next couple of hours are going to be decisive, probably looking like it might actually be the next couple of days. Because one of the things that I haven't heard from any European leaders going into that meeting is any sense of optimism that they're going to be able to reach some sort of conclusion. And what you really have, Julia, in this recovery fund and negotiations around it is really the rift that you almost always have in the European Union. Mostly the southern nations uh, versus the northern nations, uh, who are, of course, the ones who are more frugal, who are a little more tight with the money. The difference this time is that the two EU powerhouses, Germany and France, are actually on the side of the southern nations, wanting to give out some of that recovery fund money more easily. But then you have the nations known as the frugal four, who want to be more tight about the money. Uh, chief among them, of course, of course, as usual, the Netherlands, Austria, Sweden, and Denmark. And they're saying, look, if we're going to hand out this recovery fund money, they'd rather have it be in the form of loans that need to be repaid rather than grants. And if it is grants, then they want those grants to be absolutely tied to reforms that need to be made. Obviously, that's not something that the Southern European nations want to hear. They believe that's impeding on their sovereignty. So we're looking for some very, very long negotiations. There are already some who are saying, this might actually last all the way into Sunday. Of course, these leaders haven't seen each other face to face in a very long time. But whether they want to spend that much time together, I don't know, Julia. Yeah, I know. There's some irony there seeing them all elbowing as well, because that's certainly what they do as far as policy is concerned. It's like elbow each other out. But um, we won't go there. Fred Plagan, thank you so much for that. We keep our fingers crossed for action. All right, I'm going to leave you with a positive thought this Friday because it's World Emoji Day and something I personally use with um, happy and probably alarming regularity with coronavirus. You'd have thought the face mask emoji would have been the most popular. Nope. Face with tears of joy came out top in a Twitter search from April, followed by loudly crying face, which I guess could be good or bad. And my personal favourite, smiling face with hearts, came in at number 10. That's definitely my top because we all need a bit of love at the moment. That's it for the show. Have a great weekend, guys. Stay safe.
We'll see you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.